are some uh, questions for our uh, sermon-based small groups uh, that you can go through. You'll look up a lot of Scripture and uh, have opportunity to discuss how the Scripture relates to your life and to pray together and to, um, to walk with Jesus together in community. So uh, today is uh, week number seven of The Greatest Story Ever Told, our 15-week study of the whole Bible that is designed to show us all how the whole Bible fits together. There are lots of stories within the Bible, but there's also uh, one overarching story uh, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, is telling you all about Jesus from every part of the Scripture. If you haven't found Jesus in a part of the Bible you're reading, it's because you don't know how to look for Him yet. And, uh, and we're going to do... Uh, what we're doing is, is helping you to see Jesus in every part of the Scripture, but also to show you how the whole Bible fits together. And then in addition to that, what we want to do in every study that we do through God's Word is to understand how to, how to know, love, and obey Jesus better because of what He has said to us in His Word. Amen? Uh, we do not have an objective here to become smarter sinners. Uh, we want to be, we want to know God's word that He might use His word in our heart, in our life, that we might know, love, and obey Him better for having done so. Right. So, with that in mind, uh, if you'd make your way over to uh, over to your Old Testament, the Book of Exodus, chapter twenty. Uh, this is uh, we're this week we're looking at the law. So, if you look at your if you look at your study, we've looked at creation, the fall, the flood, Abraham, Jacob, and his sons. Uh, last week we saw the Exodus, where uh, all the people of Israel got uh, taken out by God's mighty hand by the blood of the Lamb. They were delivered into a new life, crossed the Red Sea uh, on on their way into a new relationship with God. And as part of that, they were given the law. And so we're going to look. At, we're going to cover three books today. We're going to cover the law from the book of Exodus, from the book of Leviticus, and from the book of Deuteronomy. So we're just accelerating. The, you know, we started with with uh, one chapter, and then we went to three chapters, and then we went to like twenty five chapters, and now we're going to do like two and a half books, okay, at a time, and uh, it'll get it'll get bigger jumps as we go. But. Uh, God gave Israel on Mount Sinai the law. And the law was given to establish the laws of their nation based on commands. Uh, it gave them a whole system of sacrifices and worship that were specifically set up to account for the fact that they weren't going to be able to keep the law because when you violated the law, you had to offer sacrifices to get back into right relationship with God. Um, and uh, a big part of its purpose, in fact, was to show them that they could not keep the law and to cause them to look to God for mercy and to sacrifice as a means of obtaining righteousness so that they would keep looking for this one that God promised all the way back in Genesis 3. Generations before, back in the garden, when the first man and first woman fell into sin, God promised them there's going to be one born of a woman who's going to come, who's going to crush the serpent, who's going to deal with sin, 
who's going to put you back into right relationship with God. And so in every generation, as you read your Bible, you're supposed to be looking for this person. Is it this guy? Is it this guy? Is it this guy? Who is it? And so far, what we've seen is a whole bunch of sin and not a whole lot of Savior yet, right? But, uh, but we're going to. And in fact, the part of the purpose of the law is to point you to the need for that Savior to come. Because you offer your sacrifice, but then you need to offer sacrifice again. And then you need to offer sacrifice again, and again, and again, and again. Uh, so what the law is supposed to do is to point out the fact that you can't keep it. And to cause you to look for the Messiah that God promised. So, um, we are living in light of that promise fulfilled. So what I want you to want to do today with you is to show you how Jesus is the fulfillment of every part of God's law. But in order to do that, we need to look at the center of the law's commands, which is the Ten Commandments. And they're found in the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 20. Uh, if you haven't found your way there yet, uh, get there as fast as you can. Uh, Exodus chapter 20. Um, and if you would stand, if you're able, and follow along as I read God's Word for us. This is what verses 1-17 to say here. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray. 
God, our Father, we thank You that Jesus Christ has come in fulfillment of the law because we could not keep it. Our hearts are too bent, too broken, too sinful, too twisted away from You to keep Your Word that You've given to us. We thank You that Jesus has kept it on our behalf that we might be made right with You through one sacrifice for all sin, for all people, for all time. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please be seated. Uh, this is God's law. It is His holy standard. Uh, but the point is not to simply to show what the point of the law is not simply to show what God requires, but to reveal the futility of trying to be holy by your own effort. Anybody of y'all tried to keep the Ten Commandments? Raise your hand. Try to do this. Okay. Uh, how many of y'all have ever lied? Raise your hand. How many of you ever coveted? Raise your hand. Okay. Hopefully, we don't have anybody shoot their hand up on murder and adultery. But, um, but, um, but the law is difficult to keep. Amen. It is very difficult to keep, especially when you understand it the way Jesus explained it. That even to look at a woman lustfully is to commit adultery in your heart, whether you do with your body or not. Right? The law is much higher and harder and more difficult than what we think, and we cannot keep it. On top of that, these are the Ten Commandments, but they're not the only part of the Old Testament law. In addition to that, there are, based on these ten, 603 additional commandments, for a total of 613, that are all based on these ten, that are all meant to tell you in detail what it means to obey God and keep these commandments in every part of your life. And obedience, by the way, to how many of them? All of them, all 613, is required. And on top of that, according to the law, if you sin, you can be forgiven through offering a sacrifice in one circumstance only. And that is, as long as you didn't mean to sin, as long as you only sinned unintentionally. Okay? So like if you were just kind of living life and you forgot about a command and you violated it, then you could go off for sacrifice and be forgiven. But if you sinned with what the Bible calls a high hand, in other words, if you deliberately, on purpose, violated God's law, then there was one remedy for that. You know what it was? Death. They took you outside of town and turned you into a rock pile with you at the bottom. They stoned you to death. You were put to death for violating God's law intentionally. That's why Romans chapter 8 called the law with this phrase. You may have heard this. The law of sin and death. In other words, you sin, you die. Death is the result. That is because before a holy God, sin is literally deadly serious. Uh, sins committed against a holy God are a capital offense. 
They are one that they take your head off, in other words. Okay? That's a capital crime. And there is no way for unholy people to restore their righteousness before God based on their performance. Right? A lot of people, even today, think that what the Bible teaches is this. They think, well, you know, good people uh, go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And so you just need to try really, really hard uh, through as much effort as you can to be a good person instead of a bad person. And a lot of people think that's what the Bible teaches. They are wrong. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches this, that there aren't any good people. There aren't any good people. And the part about bad people go to hell, that's true. But there aren't any good people. Well, now I'm in real trouble, right? If bad people go to hell and there aren't any good ones, and I can't get to heaven by trying really hard to be a good person, then I'm in trouble, right? And God gave the law to show that there aren't any good people and that we all need a way to have holiness before God that's better than simply being told, hey, you need to obey God. Because our sinful nature makes complete obedience to God impossible. But what the Bible also makes clear is that it's not just full of bad news. Amen? That what we couldn't do, Jesus did. Jesus met the law's moral commandments for us. Now, I don't normally have you flip around in your Bible. I want to have you flip around in your Bible a little bit today. And I want you to flip over to Romans chapter 8. Okay? Romans chapter 8. Because this is some, some glorious truth that is in here. And you need to see it with your own eyes. Not just hear about it out of my mouth. Alright? Uh, this is some great stuff. Uh, you can live your life on Romans 8. Uh, if you have only one chapter in your Bible, this would be a good one to get. <laughs> All right. Um, this is what the Word of God says here. There is therefore now no condemnation. That's a $10 crossword puzzle word that means no death penalty. There is now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. For God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the Spirit uh, through the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In other words, what you know, Romans eight deserves multiple sermons just all on its own. Okay, but let me explain briefly what's going on here. What God is telling us here in Romans eight is that God made the impossible possible in Jesus Christ. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to become incarnate. That's a, another $10 crossword word, word that means to take on a human nature. To become one of us. As God's Son, He had no sinful nature like we have, but because He was born of Mary, He was fully human. 
And as a fully human God-man, Jesus lived the perfect sinless life that we should have but can't. That God sent Jesus not just to live a perfect life as a human being, but to die for us. Because the reality is that what the law says is still true. That sin is still a capital crime and someone has to die for what you did. But because God loved us, He wanted a way for sin's penalty to be justly paid, but also for us not to die for it. And so God's purpose for sending Jesus was that He would suffer the death penalty that the law required for us. And that He dies in our place for our sins. And so, since He died innocent of sin, He could meet what the Scripture here calls the righteous requirements of God's law on our behalf. So Jesus was our perfect substitute. He was a man like us. But He was innocent of sin, unlike us. But because He was a perfect man and also the Son of God, He could die for all of us. He died so we could live. And so when we put our faith in Jesus, God's Spirit sets us free from the law of sin and death. Because God counts Jesus' righteousness, His law-keeping, as credited to us. Right? It would be like if you were a Bezos heir. Okay? And you are like flat broke. Like you don't have two nickels to rub together, right? And all of a sudden, you went into the bank and they said, you know, Jeff came by earlier and he deposited $100 million into your account. Is it your money? Well, no. But it's just as good as if it's your money, right? Because it's in my account, right? And in the same way, in the same way, Jesus' righteousness is credited to our account so that God counts us righteous even though we weren't because Jesus was for us. And so God cancels out the law of sin and death because Jesus kept it on our behalf. He paid the death penalty our sins deserve in our place and He lived a righteous life that the law requires that we didn't live. So in other words, do I have to keep the law as a believer in Jesus? Answer with me. No. Why not? Because I already did. When? When Jesus kept it for me. How about that? I get Jesus' righteousness. He takes on my sin. He dies and I don't. That's a good swap. That'll be the best trade you ever make in your whole life. You're coming out so far ahead you, you can't even imagine. Right? The righteous requirements of the law were met for me by Jesus because I couldn't keep the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the moral requirements of the law so that 
when you see this and you read it and you go, oh my gosh, I can't imagine trying to live up to this. That is exactly what you should think, by the way, when you read your Old Testament. I can't imagine trying to live up to this. I can't imagine trying to come, come before God on the basis of this. And the answer is, as a believer in Jesus, praise God, I don't have to. Because Jesus did for me. He fulfilled every part of the law's requirements. Jesus also established a new covenant. Now if you read the the book of Deuteronomy, which by the way, I recommend. Whenever Jesus was tempted tempted by Satan in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, do you know where all His answers come from? Deuteronomy. (laughs) Okay? They come out of Deuteronomy. Um. You should definitely read Deuteronomy. If you want to read uh, five sermons by Moses, you can get them. They're all in Deuteronomy. All right? Um, What you see as you look at this book is that the people of Israel, the generation that came out of the land of Egypt, that whole generation of adults, with two exceptions, Joshua and Caleb, They were the two good spies that brought back a good report. They were young men at the time. Uh, They were about 40 years old when they went in to to spy out the land. They're now 80 years old when they're going into the land. Moses is 120, but he's about to die. He's going to die outside the promised land because right in the last year of his life, he was disobedient to God in a major way. And he was not allowed to go in. But that whole generation that came out with the Exodus are all dead in the desert. They've all been buried. And now you've got this new generation, the youngest of whom, other than Caleb and Joshua, are 60 years old. And they're about to go in. And Moses is standing on the edge, and what he's doing with them is saying, look, you're about to go into the land, and you need to keep God's law. And so he gives them... The name of the book. Second Law. That's what Deuteronomy means. Second Law. Second restatement of the law. A a new covenant, if you will. Where he's telling them, look, remember? God made this covenant with your parents. He's making it also with you. And he, in fact, includes in the book, Uh, And it's an elaborate ceremony for when you get into the land, you're to renew your covenant with God in this specific way. And 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 they're to stand on two mountains. One is called Gerizim. The other is called Ebal. Uh, One of them is uh, lush and green, and the other is completely bald and ugly. And, uh, And they're to stand on two sides of this valley and shout blessings from the mountain that's green and curses from the mountain that's bald. <laughs> and, and for obeying God's law, you would get blessing. And, and disobeying it, you would get cursing. And in the book of Deuteronomy, what you get is a lot of stern warnings about God's judgment and the exile that will come if they violate God's covenant. We're making a second covenant with you You need to obey it because if you don't, this time in the desert, you're going to look back on with joy rather than uh, 
looking at it as something that you are eager to get out of, you'll look at it as something that you are eager to get back to because exile will be far worse than this. And if you keep reading your Old Testament, what you'll discover is that this new covenant with God's people did not, not work out very well. In fact, in a, just about, I think about three weeks from now, we'll read about the exile that actually did happen. Because guess what? Sinful people did not keep God's perfect law. In fact, the nation's history, as you read your Old Testament, is from one generation to another, violating God's law and then receiving God's judgment until it finally culminates in this exile from the land, just like Deuteronomy said would happen. So God, through the prophet Jeremiah, right before they're about to go into exile, God gives a word to the prophet Jeremiah that one day, He'll, he's going to make an entirely new covenant. That it's not going to be like the old covenant that they're going to break. But it's going to be a new covenant that's not going to be written on tablets of stone like the, like the Ten Commandments were. But it's going to be written instead by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is going to take up residence within people. And it's going to enable them to obey God by transforming them from the inside out. See, what the law tells you essentially is uh, do God's command. And it gives you no ability to make that happen because you're still the same sinner that you were. Or as the, the old poem goes, do this and that the law commands, it gives me neither feet nor hands. I need a different method. Right? And so that's what we get from Jesus. A different word the Gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Right? We are, we are transformed according to the new covenant that Jesus brings. Jeremiah predicted it. But Jesus brought it. In fact, we celebrated communion last week. You remember what Jesus said? This is the new covenant in my blood, which is given for you. Right? And in fact, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes, do you remember what Peter tells them? This is the new covenant. Right? This is what was to come. This is what Jeremiah was talking about. This is what Deuteronomy foreshadowed and was looking forward to was that we needed a new covenant. This is what came. And in fact, over and over and over throughout your Bible, throughout the New Testament, it points back to these promises, these prophecies, and anticipates the coming of Jesus and the new now, that doesn't name Jesus in Jeremiah 31. But you're supposed to be looking for Him all the way from Genesis 3. Remember? Now, those of you who are paying attention, I mentioned this is gonna, we're going to talk about Exodus. We're going to talk about Deuteronomy. And there was one other book we're going to talk about. Remember? Which one? Leviticus, right? Leviticus. Everyone's favorite book in their Bible reading plan. Right? <laughs> um, 
<laughs> the reason I haven't mentioned it yet is because I'm saving the best stuff for last. Okay, and you know I haven't said anything about Leviticus yet. A lot of you are thinking, how can the book of Leviticus be the best stuff that there is on this part of the law? Because you're thinking, Leviticus is where my annual commitment to read the Bible through in a year goes to die. Right? Uh, I can't get through Leviticus. It's awful. This is, this is all this stuff about sacrifices and inspecting temples and all kinds of weird stuff in there. I don't get it. Like, what am I supposed to do with Leviticus? Right? I get it, by the way. If Leviticus is hard for you, uh, it, it's a hard book for us to get, but it's because we think that reading about sacrifices and clothing and robes and ceremonies and a whole deal is boring and irrelevant, but that's because we don't understand how all these things are meant to point us to Jesus. Let me walk you through the tabernacle for a second. Okay, If you remember, the tabernacle was this tent. And on the outside of it, it had a wall that went all the way around. And you could get in to the tabernacle through one door. And only one door. That was intentional. right? You can't just come in any way you want. You have to come through the one way that God made. And you came and you brought your offering and you went and you came into God's presence through sacrifice at an altar. Right? And then those who became unclean went right behind it to wash in the water of purification. And then as you went inside the tabernacle itself, what you encountered was the light of the world and the bread of God's presence. And then you went before another altar where your prayers went up before God. And then, if you were the high priest, you were allowed to go into God's very presence where He sat enthroned above the cherubim. Now if you sketch this out, what you'll see is that you draw a straight line from the ark to the altar to the gate. And then in the middle, you have another line you can draw across from the table to the light. Right? That's what you're meant to see. That the way of the cross is the way into God's presence. Now let me, let me go through it a little more. Okay? If you read the Gospel of John, he says he is the gate through which all the sheep have to enter. And that he is the only way, the only gate, the only door through which you can enter life. He is the Lamb of God, he says, who takes away the sin of the world. He says that He is the living water for everyone who thirsts, and that He washes clean and gives new life. He is the true bread that came down from heaven that gives eternal life. He is the light of the world that enlightens every person. You see this? 
This is your tabernacle that you're reading about in Leviticus and how they're supposed to worship God. According to the book of Hebrews, He is the one who goes behind the veil into God's presence. That He advocates for us and intercedes for us before the Father with our prayers as a great high priest. And He does something that no Old Testament priest could do, which is to sit down in God's presence. You know, in the tabernacle, they have all these tables and all this stuff, but you know what there aren't? There aren't any chairs. And that is because the work of the priest was never done because the people remained sinful and the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. And so they were continually offering sacrifices. They offered them every morning, every evening, every Sabbath day. They offered them every change of seasons. They offered them with every festival. And there were thousands and thousands and thousands of dead animals from one end of Israel to the other because of all the need for sacrifice. But Jesus enters in behind the veil into God's own presence. And having offered one sacrifice, sits down because the work is done. The work for your sin and for mine is done. Jesus offered one sacrifice of Himself. And so now He sits at God's right hand where He advocates for you and for me. And besides that, if you have eyes to see, you can see that the sacrifices and the festivals that Israel is given also point to Jesus. The sacrifices are the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering. The burnt offering was completely consumed. And it was, uh, it was according to Leviticus, a sweet-smelling sacrifice to God. Now, I don't know if you've ever burned something on the stove, but I would not describe that aroma as sweet-smelling. Right? And if you burn a piece of meat to a crisp, it is not savory. Right? But God said that the sacrifice that was completely consumed is a sweet-smelling aroma before God. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, we read that Jesus offered His whole life and His death to God in such a way that He is, are you ready? The sweet-smelling aroma of salvation. For you and for me. The grain offering was made of the first fruits. According to 1 Corinthians 15.20, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus is the one who establishes peace between us and God. According to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, in 2 Corinthians 5.18-19, He is the peace offering. Jesus is the sin offering offering who takes away both our sin and our guilt as Romans 5 gloriously proclaims to us. And we also see Jesus in the festivals that the law commanded. The year begins with Passover, the day celebrating their release from slavery and the fact that they were saved from slavery by the blood of the Lamb. We looked at that last week. They also during that celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Three days later comes Firstfruits. When the first of the harvest comes in. Fifty days later, after Passover, is Pentecost celebrating that God has brought in the grain. 
And in the fall, there are three more feasts. The first is Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Trumpets, when trumpets blow and all Israel is gathered. And then comes Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when all of the people gather to repent and national sin is paid for. And on that day, there is a scapegoat. And I love this. There's two goats that are offered. They pick, they pick out two special goats and they take one of them and they lay their hands on it and they pronounce this, all the sins that the nation has committed. In other words, the priest was like keeping record of all the things that people had done throughout the year. And then they named those in public. God forgive us our adulteries. God forgive us our murder. God forgive us our lying, our coveting, our all our idolatry, etc. Right? And then they would take that goat, the scapegoat, they called it, and they would lead it out into the wilderness and they would get it lost. And then they would leave it. And the idea was is that the goat has taken the sins out where they can't find their way home back to the people. Where was Jesus crucified? Outside the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because He is the scapegoat who took away sin. There's also the other goat that they slaughter and they pull, they, they pour the blood of the sacrificial goat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And there's these two angels. If you've seen Raiders, you know this, right? There's two angels on top uh, of the lost ark. And, um, and the, the idea was when you poured the blood out that these angels were, that the, the sin of the people represented by the broken tablets inside the box was covered over by the blood of sacrifice. And so both our sin and our guilt is taken away. Right? Um, now, if you know these things about... Oh, finally, one more. There's the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Tabernacles. When everybody builds a shelter to celebrate the days when God tabernacled with them and dwelt visibly with them in the wilderness. Now, if you know some things about Jesus' life, here's what you know. That He, was offered unleavened, that he offered unleavened bread to His disciples as He instituted communion. Why? Because it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread that goes along with Passover. He was crucified on Passover Friday. They, they put Him on the cross at the time when the morning sacrifices are made. He died later that same day at the time of the evening sacrifice. He was raised from the dead three days later as the first fruits of the resurrection. On the first day, the first fruits. So it's almost as if God had a plan for these festivals that they would be fulfilled, right? Now, by the way, um, He sent the Spirit 50 days after Passover on Pentecost as the harvest is being gathered in. Now, we also believe that we are looking forward to a day when, what does Jesus say will announce His coming? The blowing of a trumpet. Right? I'd start looking in the fall, by the way, if I was listening. 
uh, for a trumpet to blow. It doesn't have to be in the fall, but it, wouldn't that be cool if that just happened to be on an upcoming Rosh Hashanah? <laughs> it happens this month. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, an upcoming Rosh Hashanah when the trumpet blows and all God's people gather. And then after that, I believe, there will be a day of atonement when Israel will be gathered together and their sins atoned for by the blood of sacrifice, by the Messiah they rejected. They will now be saved. And then after that, God will once again tabernacle with us. In fact, if you read your Bible, in John chapter 1, it says the Word became flesh and tabernacled. Is literally the Word that's there. Tabernacled with us. But one day He's going to tabernacle with us far better than He did in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was scary, right? You saw this fire and cloud and storm. We're going to dwell in peace next to a holy God as God's holy people. Now, um, once again, the point of all these things is to show you that while Israel got shadows and pictures and foretastes, we received the reality, the true things to which they all pointed. And one of the things that that ought to do for you, men and women, is to transform your Bible reading. So when you read your Bible, or you know, if you have trouble reading, there's a wonderful app out there called YouVersion that I like to use. And it will actually read the Scripture to you. And there are different voices according to which translation you pick. So if you pick the, the CSB, you know, the cool Southern Baptist version, uh, it will... <laughs> it will uh, read the Bible to you. If you pick the ESV, you get a different voice. You know, if you pick uh, the NIV, you get a different voice. Whatever, but it'll read the Bible to you. And sometimes, if it's a busy morning for me and I'm getting ready or whatever, I'll just put it on in the bathroom, turn the volume up, and listen to the scripture, right? And but it ought to transform your Bible because what you ought to be doing as you're going through the pages of the Bible from beginning to end is looking for Jesus in it. Because it is true, this is true, if you find some part of this boring, it's because you haven't yet seen Jesus in it in the way you should. Because Jesus is in every part of your Bible. Beyond that, all of this stuff that we're learning about this is connected to our mission to share the Gospel and make disciples. Because a larger vision of who Jesus is and what He has done for us ought to cause us to love Him more. And that love for Him, as it grows, should overflow to lost people who don't know Jesus. And we ought to be then motivated and excited to show and tell them how He makes holy people. And it is by grace through faith and not by our efforts to try to be good people on our own. Amen? We can't live up to God's commands by our own effort. That cannot be done. It is foolish to try. You cannot do that. But what you can do is believe in Jesus and get a new heart and transform from the inside out. 
and then you can obey God. So whenever we share the Gospel, we need to help people understand that the Bible is not telling them to be good. It's telling us that none of us are good, but Jesus is. And that He fulfilled the law by dying the death that we deserved. And He washed us clean when we believed in Him. Now, I don't know where everyone in the room is in terms of their relationship with Jesus, but let me get just very direct with you. Okay? If you have been living your life up to now thinking, I'm going to try to really hard to be a good person. I'm going to get back to church. I'm going to stop cussing. I'm going to uh, you know, quit getting drunk. I'm going to quit you know, going out with girls that do those things. Uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to like, get my life straight. Right? And try to be a good person instead of a hooligan like I've been all this time. Right? And you're thinking that, that being a Christian is just like trying really, really hard to be good. Let me give you the best news in the world. You can stop trying that mess. It will not work. But you know what will? Putting your trust in Jesus Christ. It is not about your effort. It is about His work that is done on your behalf. It isn't a long list of things for you to do. It is about believing in Jesus Christ and being transformed from the inside out by the Spirit of God coming to live within you. And if you would like to believe in Jesus, and I would encourage you with all of the love of Christ to believe in Jesus. He is the only way that God made for you to be made right with God. This is what you need to do. You need to, to understand, first of all, what your problem is. I'm a sinner, and I am destined for hell if I do not have my sin forgiven by God. That's the problem. And then you need to understand God's solution to that problem, which is He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins and to be raised from the dead to give you new life. And then you need to believe in that. And by believe, what we mean is to rely on that truth to deal with your sin and grant you forgiveness from God that you might have the new life the Bible talks about. And in the moment that you believe, you are saved. It's not believe and get baptized. It's not believe and walk a Girl Scout across the street and buy a box of cookies. It's not believe and go to church. It's believe in Jesus Christ that He died for you and was raised from the dead. And you can do it right now as we sit together. And then I would encourage you, if you do that, to tell everybody about what you've done, including me. I would love to hear it and celebrate with you. Uh, you could pray to God just right now in your head. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Now finally, knowing all these things should magnify our wonder and amazement. I want to show you one more passage. Uh, this is Hebrews chapter 12. If you want to find your way there, you can. If not, I'll read it for you. Remember how the people of Israel came to the mountain, Mount Sinai, where they received the law? This is what the book of Hebrews says to us. For you have not come to what may be touched, 
a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Now hear this. This is really good. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal assembly and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Somebody should shout hallelujah right here. Okay? Because this is the best news in the world. We don't come to a smoking mountain. We don't come in fear and trembling before God because God has eliminated all fear that we might have of Him in the blood of Jesus Christ. And unlike the blood of Abel that cried out against Uh, his brother Cain for having murdered him, the blood of Jesus cries out forgiveness for you and me. Amen? And so knowing all these things from Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus and these places that you're like, I don't even understand any of this, ought to magnify your wonder at the fact that Jesus loves you and gives you and me crazy sinners like us, new life. And membership in the assembly of the firstborn. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we do sing hallelujah to You. We praise Yahweh, our God. Because we rejoice in what You have brought to us. Father, help us to not keep quiet about it. Help us to annoy everybody in the world with the good news of Jesus. Because we simply cannot shut up about the truth and the beauty and the glory that we have found. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.